And to the man he said, on your account the earth will be cursed. You will get your food from it only by labor all the days of your life. In his humorous travel guide to boating on the Thames, the Victorian author Jerome K. Jerome remarks, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. <laughs> Jerome's quip is funny because it trades on a common irony about work and the way that work is perceived by the leisured class. The irony is that work is essential to an economy that venerates leisure. In other words, for most people in the modern Western world, we work not just to eat, but to make it possible not to work. We regard Wednesdays as hump days, and at the end of the week, we say TGIF. We accumulate our hours so that we can enjoy time away from work's sameness, stress, and soreness, and we hope to have enough spare cash at the end of it all to pay for others to work so that we too can be fascinated and look at it for hours. Why this antipathy towards work? Well, modern attitudes about work are complicated. It is true that they are affected by the seemingly universal aversion identified by Jerome but in part they are also shaped by the capitalistic values that govern our society. Work is the means by which someone earns a living and pays his or her dues as a productive member of the body politic. In this respect, work has become a measure of utility and it affects the way that we view one another and the way we view ourselves. Consequently, Despite our allergy to work, we can feel guilty or anxious when we aren't working. An article entitled The Busy Trap, written by Tim Kreider in the New York Times five years ago, captures this well. Commenting on the plague of frenzy that seems to characterize our generation, he opines, it's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy, so busy, crazy busy. It is, pretty obviously, a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have, or better than the opposite. But he continues, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. Now, who does Mr. Kreider say is ultimately responsible for this modern addiction to busyness? The Puritans turned work into a virtue, he explains, evidently forgetting that God invented it as a punishment. His solution, of course, is to be found in promoting what he describes as his own lifestyle, one of defiant indolence and resolute idleness. The idea that work comes to us as drudgery does have some resonance in scripture, as we've just heard from our reading in Genesis. 
Furthermore, I believe it is true that Protestant thought on the nature of vocation and predestination has helped to shape perceptions of work that are fundamentally unhealthy, that make crazy busy truly crazy. But in a homiletic season where we are thinking with the reformers about key biblical texts, I want to take some time this morning to draw out some of the reformers' insights as a way of helping us to discover a more wholesome view of work. Briefly, I want to elaborate on three reformed themes. A, that human beings were made for work. B, that human toil can also be a means of grace. And C, that the preeminent aim of work is the love of God and neighbor. So to begin with, human beings were made for work. The reformers remind us that Genesis 3, verses 17 to 18, is not the first biblical reference to work. Immediately after the creation of the human being in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we are told that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden away to the east, and in it he put the man he had formed. God then carries on the work of a landscaper, adding trees and rivers, precious metals and stones, bunkers and fairways. And then in chapter 2 and verse 15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to look after it. Luther comments here that it is appropriate to point out that man was created not for leisure, but for work, even in the state of innocence. Now, Mesopotamian epics had their own accounts of how the human workforce came to be. But there, people were created to be slaves to the gods, waiting on their needs and attending to menial tasks that were tiresome to them. In contrast, the biblical account furnishes an image of human beings cooperating with God in the management of the garden, a garden he called Eden, delight. There is, of course, a parallel here with God's earlier commission to humanity, where he also shared with them the dominion of the earth. So, from the beginning, human beings are meant to find fulfillment in work. Dorothy Sayers said, work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. Now, this is not to deny that the joy of co-laboring with God in the world is frequently elusive. But it is right that we should receive a sense of satisfaction in our work and experience pride in a job well done. For there is a dignity in labor that is a consequence of our having been created in the image of him whose care for us and for creation is ongoing and with which we participate. In the words of the psalmist, he sendeth the springs into the valleys. They run among the hills. He watereth the hills from above. The earth is filled with the fruit of his works. But then secondly, human toil can be a means of grace. It is well that we seek gratification in our labor and that we, provide, and that we strive to provide humane and profitable conditions for those who work for and alongside us. But the hard reality of our existence is that we no longer live in God's garden of delight, 
where we may hope to receive some degree of enjoyment from our work, in the end, we sometimes need to work simply to survive. And even with survival as a motive, we may come to regard our employment as a place of overwhelming frustration and futility. Now we have come to the world of Genesis chapter 3. And here Luther says, work which in the state of innocence would have been play and joy is a punishment. Indeed, for Luther, the punishment is more severe uh, than it was for Adam because of the growth of sin in the world. But the infestation of thorns and thistles provide us this service. They stir us in our insensibility and awaken memories of our waywardness and its consequences. Comments Luther. Not only in the churches, therefore, do we hear ourselves charged with sin. All the fields, yes, almost the entire creation is full of such sermons, reminding us of our sin and of God's wrath, which has been aroused by our sin. In this, Luther would seem to be following Chrysostom, who held that the condemnation to a life of toil and labor is so, quote, that you may never forget your disobedience. Now, remembering diso our disobedience is never a pleasant occupation in itself. Indeed, it can be quite humiliating, quite literally, as we grovel in the dust. And yet, it can be a means of grace if it leads to repentance and trust. Luther, like Cranmer after him, understood the dynamics of the human soul. The contrition that God plants in our hearts when we remember our sin is meant to lead us to sure confidence in Jesus Christ as the sin bearer. The fruitlessness of the earth should make us think of the promise of the seed, says Luther, who will remove the penalty of eternal death, which is infinitely greater. In fact, for, for Tertullian, the very symbols of our sins in the thorns and thistles are now borne by the Savior as a spiny crown. And this leads finally to the conviction that the preeminent aim of work is the love of God and neighbor. Martin Luther's greatest contribution to Christian thought in this area had to do with his view of vocation. He rejected the notion that vocation was restricted to those under vows in the church or the monastery. He and Calvin taught that as the first man received a commission as a farmer, the divine call is now issued to all human beings to join him in his work in the world. And therefore, all of life and its godly activities are sanctified. This means that all mundane enterprises, domestic, economic, political, educational, and cultural, all these are infused with a religious significance. False is the separation of the sacred and the profane, as well as the social pyramid that holds bishops in higher esteem than bakers. True is the reality that God and his human creation are meant to work in partnership with him and with one another. It is with this thought that we will end. Luther held that all work, when done in the right spirit, 
and trusting in God embodies the Christian vocation. Therefore, when we serve others, we participate with God in forwarding his purposes for humanity. And when we are served by another, we are being served by the God who has called them to their task. In Luther's famous expression, God milks the cows through the hands of the milkmaid. When we pray to God to give us this day our daily bread, we must be prepared to see his answer in the farmer that grows the grain and harvests the crop, in the miller who grinds the corn, in the baker who cooks the bread, in the driver who transports the bread to market, and in the shopkeeper who sells the loaf to us. In this way, we may understand all vocation, as Luther did, as the larva dei, the mask of God. And we honor God when we detect him behind all honest work. And so, we work because we were made to work, and because we can find fulfillment in it. We work to remind ourselves of our need for God and of one another. And we work in order to meet one another's needs and to glorify God. May our work in this fallen world be so used by him that we may see its completion in the vision of Isaiah, who foresees the ultimate completion of our work. My people will build houses and live in them, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build for others to live in or plant for strangers to eat. They will be as a long-lived as a tree, and my chosen ones will enjoy the fruit of their labor. They will not toil to no purpose or raise children for misfortune, because they and their issue after them are a race blessed by the Lord. Amen.